Thank you so much. Let's take our Bibles and join me, please, in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, as we do a quick Bible study this morning. Many of you are familiar with all those different types of warning labels that may come on such items as your pillow that says if you remove this warning label, you will spend the next 3,500 years in purgatory or something of that silly sort. There are a number of warnings that I find that as we go through some of these different products that seem rather silly. For instance, I'll give you several of these. On a salt pack that you can buy, warning contains salt. What else would it do? On a can of tuna, caution, contains fish. On a dust dust mask, you know what those are, right? I mean, we're wearing them all the time. Caution, this mask does not supply oxygen. (laughs) On a travel pillow, do not use while sleeping. When else would you use it? On an information booklet, do not use this booklet if you cannot see clearly to read the information in this information booklet. On a dishwasher, do not allow children to play in the dishwasher. There's a toy that's called rubber band shooter. Caution, this toy shoots rubber bands. What else is it supposed to do? They're on a letter opener. Caution, safety goggles are highly recommended. On a can of aerosol cheese, for best results, remove cap. On a bicycle, removing the wheels can influence the performance of this bicycle. On a child's birthday badge that reads, I am two, not to be used by children under age three. (laughs) You read these labels and you go, how silly. But there is one caution that isn't so silly that sometimes we overlook. It's the caution that's written in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and it's a warning about taking communion. Now, that doesn't sound like we should be talking about it, but... In 1 Corinthians 11, we really are, before we take communion, we are warned to be very careful. Let's talk about that from 1 Corinthians 11, and let's start off with this. If we were to just put our thoughts together and say, what do we know about communion, without spending a whole lot of time, and you were to write down everything you know, I think most of you would write this kind of stuff down. One, you know that it was initiated by Jesus Christ. This wasn't something that people came up with. This was something Jesus designed, this celebration of the Lord's Supper. We also know that, too, that it was something that Jesus commanded his disciples to do. After he'd celebrated that communion, he said, this do in remembrance of me. Keep on doing, keep on doing. So it's something that Jesus Christ wants us to be practicing. We'd probably have written this down. We know that this service is important to God for several reasons. If you look at chapter 11, verse 23, Paul is going to make this comment. He says, I have received of the Lord. And so he makes it very clear that God gave him special revelation about the communion service that he hadn't had. He had already heard about it. He had already known about it. But God gives him extra information information because God says, this is an important service and I want to make sure you do it right. We also know that God gave a good amount of scripture over to the communion service. He gave this almost entirely half of one chapter for this one topic and one topic alone, as well as mentions it in the different gospels. We know that it's important to God because look at verses 26 and 27. In this text, when he talks about communion, he says, for as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death to he come wherefore whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord and so he gives a clear 
information about how serious this is to him. That we need to be cautious about it. And then he goes on and talks about consequences. That if we do it wrong, that there's going to be serious consequences. Okay, Jesus started it. It is something that he wants us to do. It's something that's important to God. I would think that most of you would have written this down as well. It was very important to the early church. When we go to the book of Acts, we read that one of the very activities they got involved with, when it talks about they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrines, etc., it includes the breaking of the bread. That's more than just a normal eating of a meal together. It's the idea, as most scholars conclude, it's the idea of taking communion. We go further in the book of Acts, and we know that it was important because it says upon the first day of the week that the disciples came together, they were breaking the bread. They were celebrating it every Sunday. We know from church history that not only did they start in the book of Acts every day and then take it to Sundays, but that practice of almost doing of communion almost every Sunday lasted for a few hundred years in church history until it spread out to the point that some churches will do it uh, weekly, some will do it monthly, some will do it a couple times a year, some will do it annually. But we know that it was important to the early church. I believe that the scriptures makes it clear that it is for believers and believers only. This isn't a celebration. This isn't a service. This isn't a, an observance that's for open to the public. It is for those who are believers. Where do we get that from? Well, if you go to the text that we just mentioned in Acts 2, that it describes the activities of the disciples, not the community, but the disciples came together. They broke bread. The disciples continued steadfastly. If we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I want you just to gloss through the passage with me. If you go to verse 24, he talks about you take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. When he says in verse 25, this you are to do as oft as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death. We go a little bit further where he talks about that idea in verse 31. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. In verse 32, when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. In verse 33, wherefore my brethren, all the pronouns that are used here are two things to note. They are all plural and they are all with this an idea of us, we, you, me, you plural, or the writer saying me. Now who is that? Who is he writing to and who's writing? Go to chapter 1 verse 1. If you back up, it's very clear that these are believers, that the writer is a believer, that the recipients are believers. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. We know Paul was born again. We have his story in Acts chapter 9. We know that he's an apostle. He's a saved person. He's the we that he's talking about, including with the people he's writing to. And who are they? Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Clearly, the, the you in the passage, the we that Paul includes himself, are people who are saints, sanctified, born again. They have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ to forgive them of their sins. They're trusting him and him alone to be the Savior, the Redeemer of their soul. It is for believers only as demonstrated by the passage. Let's give, give another comment. It is for church gatherings, not for people just to choose and do on their own whenever it suits their fancy or their schedule. 
How do I come up with that conclusion? That this isn't something that people should just say, well, I feel like doing communion today. Let's just do it at home all by ourselves. Okay? And not involved or engaged when the church, when the body that they're a part of has established the time. The reason I say that is, again, all the, plural, the pronouns that are used in the passage are plural. Not the idea of when you singularly choose to do this, but when you as a group... And then look at the entire context of this passage where he starts in verse 17 all the way to the end of verse 34 and talking about this whole communion idea. He says this three times. When you come together, when you come together, when you come together, it is the idea of the body celebrating it together. And so communion isn't something that people should just say, as I mentioned already, okay, we're just going to do it on a whim, whenever we want to do it, and we'll just kind of attach it to some family gathering. It's for the church body. That's who he's writing this epistle to. It's for when believers get together. Let me make one other observation. It is, is Since it's important to Christ... It's important to God. It was important to the early church. It should be important to those of us here in 2021. It should be important enough that we celebrate it. Now, we have liberties as often as you do it. We can choose how often we do it. We can even choose how we do it. There is nothing spelled out about how you have to do it as far as, okay, should you sit in the pew and have deacons come by and serve you? Should you pick up the cup in the foyer and do it? Or should you all just file up to the very front and then we hand you the elements? There is nothing in the scriptures that says what's right or what's wrong. I do know that there are some precautions that I think we want to take I've shared with you before that when we were overseas in one of the communion services, that we, a couple of them that we celebrated and were part of, they had one cup and one cup alone that everybody drank from. And the deacons would just start over here and they would say, here, Mark, here's your cup. And then so that he wouldn't pass on germs, they would have a hanky and they'd wipe off where Mark put his lips. And then they would pass it to Heidi. They would turn it around and she would drink from the other side. They would wipe it and then they would pass it on to Nathaniel after they turned it around again and wiped it. So by the time it got back to you up there, it's been rotated about a thousand times and wiped down with the same hanky. Okay. Now, I'm not sure I want to do communion that way, especially in this, in this time. We can choose however we do it. But this is what we have to do. We have to do it regularly, okay? And we have to do it right. Now, what is right? What does this passage tell us is the right way to do communion? Two thoughts this morning. Two ideas that come from this text. To do communion right, we have to make sure that when we do communion, we're exalting Christ. That has to be in our minds, all of our minds, and I'll explain that in a moment. The other right way to do it is we have to not only be exalting Christ, we have to be examining ourselves. Those are the two characteristics of doing communion right. Let's deal with the exalting Christ. We know that that's true. We know that this is all about communion because Jesus said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of... Okay, it's about him. In fact, in this text, it says, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. It's all about Christ. This service is to be focused on Jesus. This isn't supposed to be focused on how much food is this going to give me, okay? Am I going to get filled by that wafer? Trust me, you won't, okay? And in fact, many of you are going to go, ooh, that wafer isn't like the crackers we use. 
Okay, this isn't about us. This is about exalting Christ, which makes perfect sense because when Jesus initiated the first communion, it was a thanksgiving service. That he said, that in the passage, as he broke the elements, he said, he had given thanks, take, eat, this is my body. This. He is giving thanks. And by the way, the word that we get communion, that word that we use in modern terms, it's often from the Greek, it's that idea of eucharisteo. That's the word giving thanks. Many churches even call this service the service of the Eucharist, the giving of thanks. Well, what amazes me is Jesus is giving thanks at that Last Supper. He is giving thanks that his body is going to be broken, his blood is shed before he does it. He is saying, Father, I thank you that you have planned for me to sacrifice and suffer this way so I can provide salvation for every and all. And so it's a service of celebrating. And it makes a whole lot more sense. If we just take a minute, let's walk back in history, and let's remember when Jesus is starting this service, when he is establishing communion, what was he doing? He was celebrating Passover, a Jewish meal and festivity that they celebrated every year. They still celebrate it. It comes in the spring of every year, close to what we call Easter. They have Passover. That Passover is a meal where they get together. And part of that meal is they have a variety of different elements, herbs and wines and the lamb and breads. And they use each and every one of these elements as a means of symbolizing something. In fact, the youngest child is supposed to turn to the oldest person, the oldest man in the room, and say, what does this mean? What does this mean? And then they rehearse all of what it pictures and it reminds them of when they go all the way back to the origination of Passover when they were delivered from bondage in Egypt. In fact, they they talk about this whole idea when they take the bitter herbs. The bitter herbs are supposed to be symbolizing how we suffered in bondage for 400, 430 years in Egypt. And we were dying and we were had no hope, had no help. But all of a sudden then they shift gears that there was the lamb that was sacrificed. And we remember, all of us remember the story. The lamb is sacrificed the blood is put on the doorpost. So when death comes as the 10th plague, what did the death angel do when it saw the, the blood on the door? He passed over. Okay, Those people were protected. They didn't suffer that judgment. And then the next day they were allowed to leave and they were freed and they were delivered. The wines, they're supposed to be reminding these people of that covenant that God made with them. That covenant that gave them, that made them his people, that, that promised them a new land, a new place that would be overflowing with milk and honey. And that idea of God providing for them in the wilderness, the bread, was picturing how God would care for them. And so this is all about remembering this feast that the Jews did. It was remembering God's deliverance, God's adoption of them as a nation, as a people, how God was going to provide for them. Jesus takes that very meal that is so symbolic. And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to change it from the symbolism of deliverance physically to a spiritual deliverance. And he takes some of the same elements that they were talking there, and he's picturing that he is the Passover lamb. That it's his blood that when, the, when, when we stand before God the Father and we are covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, he, his judgment passes over us. That Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, gave his life so that we could have deliverance. The idea is in this, whole, this passage that it was his sacrifice of his body, the shedding of his blood. It's that idea that we are not 
now free from the bondage, the slavery of sin. We are free from the damnation of sin. It's that whole idea that God established a new covenant with us. Not with just the Jews, but with all of us. A new covenant where we become his children. He lets his spirit reside in us once we get born again. And he has promised us a new home in heaven that is a surety. It's not just a hope so, it's a no so. He even said that I'm not even going to finish the last cup of the Passover meal with the disciples because I won't drink it until I get you in heaven with me, all of you. And then we'll drink it together. So when we come to this communion service, we're thinking, we're talking about what Jesus did. How he gave us deliverance. How he adopted us into his family. How he has promised us a home in heaven. And so these elements remind us of what he's done, what he's doing, what he will do for us. That's the symbolism. That's why what we're supposed to be doing in this service is we're supposed to be focused on Christ. And exalting him, which makes perfect sense. My body which is broken for you. This is, Jesus did all this for you, for me. Jesus is, this is all about him establishing a covenant, a promise where it's signed and sealed with his blood that we are his children. We will be in heaven with him. This is a wonderful service. It's a celebratory time that we recall what he has done for us and what he has promised us. That's why this is a time we exalt Jesus Christ. Because he deserves it for what he's done for us. But I mentioned as well that we're supposed to not only exalt Christ, but I am surprised how much of this text is focused on examining ourselves. I, I hadn't thought about it before. But if you follow along as I read this text, you just see how much of it, as he talks about the celebration, is about, hey guys, make sure you check yourself. I'm going to start at the very beginning of the entire thought. Verse 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I don't praise you, that you come together not for the better, but when you come together, it's for the worse, is basically what he says. And he says, for first of all, when you come together in the church, and then he says what he thinks is wrong with them, that there's divisions among you. Jump down a little bit. And when you come together, verse 20, therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating everyone takes before his own supper. And he goes on, he says, as one is hungry, another is drunk. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in, or despise you the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he is betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake and said, Take eat, this is my body, broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he then took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do he as oft as he drink it in remembrance of me. For as oft as he eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason or cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep, they're dead. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another, and if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation, and the rest I will set in order when I come unto you. He's going to make it very clear in this passage. 
He's going to give a warning. He that eats and drinks unworthily eats and drinks damnation to himself. He goes on, not discerning the Lord's body. We've got to dissect that for a moment. Most of you understand, but just in case somebody's here this morning, we've got to make sure that you understand what's he mean by eat and drink unworthily. Eat and drink unworthily, he is not saying that the only people who can take this are those who are worthy of the sacrifice of Jesus. You deserve Jesus dying. You deserve God's grace. That's not true. Because none of us are worthy of it. None of us deserve his forgiveness. That's because for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We don't deserve what Jesus Christ did for us. We're not that good. That's not what unworthy means. You know, none of us, none of us can be good enough to deserve his forgiveness. So then what's he mean in this passage? What's he mean when he's saying, not in an unworthy fashion, drinks unworthily? It's the idea of unworthy fashion, in an inappropriate manner, in a manner that is distasteful, in a manner that offends Jesus Christ in the way that we conduct ourselves, in our attitude, in our actions during communion. You and I, we, we kind of get that sense. We understand what he's talking about. We can go back to the Bible and we can say, okay, what did the very first disciples, when he initiated communion, what were they doing that offended Jesus? When they gathered together for communion, remember they had a problem. They were arguing amongst themselves and they got rebuked for it. Do you remember what their argument was? Who's the greatest? Who should be served? In fact, they wouldn't dare serve one another by washing feet. And Jesus illustrates to them that this isn't about me. This jealousy between believers is an inappropriate, unworthy fashion of coming to communion. It would be wrong for you and I to, to do that, to ignore others, to just demand that we get noticed and not others. Then we go to Corinthians. And we say, okay, what did he point out in their passage that, that he writes about? What did they do that was unworthy? When you look at the passage, there's divisions between the saints. He says that there are divisions, there are divisiveness, and we know that. You read the rest of the epistle. They were arguing over, hey, I'm, you know, I like this pastor more than that pastor, and they'd form little groups in the church based upon the different preachers that they liked. They were divided over money. They were divided over spiritual gifts. I got a better gift than you do, so I'm not going to hang around you because you're not as spiritual as me. I have gifts that are showing, you don't. And so they, they were divisive. They were, they were ignoring. They were avoiding. They were discounting other believers within the body of Christ. There was conflicts that were unresolved. He goes on. He says that there is even some that were treating others in a very disrespectful fashion. You see, in that, in that time, what they had started was the love feast. They were eating a meal together, and then they would wrap up with communion. And he tells them, don't even do the feast anymore. Eat at home. That's where he ends up in the chapter. Because when you're getting together, some of you who have food aren't even sharing it with the people who don't have food. Some of you are rich. Some of you are poor. Some of you have somebody sitting across the table. You're eating. You're getting, getting fed. And that person, they got scraps. And you're not even sharing with them. Some of you have gotten drunk on the wine you've taken so much and you're all of a sudden acting like you're intoxicated when this is supposed to be serious business. And so that idea that you're disrupting the unity of the body, you're mistreating somebody else within the body, that's wrong. And he corrects them and challenges them for that. 2021. Well, if we would do anything like the apostles did or the church of Corinth, it's wrong. 
we would be approaching this in an unworthy fashion. But let's add to that. If you are harboring sin, sin that you said that you don't want anybody else to know about, you're keeping it and you have no intent to stop and you have no repentant heart, this, is, this, this would be a, just an absolute contradiction in terms. I'm celebrating communion that Jesus Christ has given me freedom and victory over sin, the sin that I'm going to plan and go out and do later on this week. He's, that would be inappropriate. You are, you are discounting what Christ died for by hanging on to sins that you won't repent of. Let's, let's take it a, flip, a, a little bit further. If you're approaching this in a flippant fashion, if it's just like, okay, let's get this over with. Come on, Pastor Wayne, move it, move it. The game starts at, I don't know what time. Okay, but we need to get out of here. We need to beat the crowd. Now that restaurants are open, we want to get there by 1130. It ain't happening. Um, but but you, you, you're just not focused on exalting Christ. You know, this is mundane. This is something you don't really care about, but because you're part, you know, mom and dad make you come, we got to go through it. That's dangerous. It's dangerous because it says you'd be guilty of the body and blood of Jesus. What's that mean? Of dishonoring Jesus. It says in this text, you'd be guilty of not discerning, not appreciating what Jesus Christ has done. That you would be basically showing great disrespect. You, you understand what that is like? That's happened a lot lately, right? There's a lot of displays of disrespect that get our blood boiling at times that offend us, that upset us. And we get more upset about that type of stuff than we do when believers disrespect the table of God. And God is saying, hey, listen, this is serious stuff in my mind. It's serious enough that you better examine yourself, and I'll give you the reasons why from this text. Number one, I already mentioned it. It may be needed. It was needed by the disciples. It was needed by the Corinthians. It may be needed by us that we examine ourselves because we may be guilty of coming in a flippant fashion. We may be guilty of not taking sin seriously to repent of it. We may be guilty of having conflict with other believers, disrupting the unity of the body. But there's another reason why we need to be examining ourselves. It's commanded. He says, let a man examine himself. It is not a suggestion. It's an imperative. And it's an imperative that applies to every single one of us who are born-again believers. I'll give you the third reason why we need to examine ourselves from this text. Because it'll help avoid God's chastisement. It'll help avoid God's chastisement. What do we mean by that? Well, look at the text. Here, and let me, in the English, you have judge show up four times here. Judge or judged. And it's, some of it's the same word, some of it isn't. So let me walk you through, and you can write in your Bibles what will be helpful. For if we would judge, literally examine to look for any flaws, look for any, any um, cracks, if we would examine ourselves, he goes on, we would not be examined by somebody else thoroughly who would look for the flaws and the cracks. So if I examine me, make sure that I'm fessed up to the Lord, he's not going to then repeat and re-examine all those things that are now under the blood. But, by the way, I should put this. The first judge here in verse 31 is very, very thorough judging. Thoroughly. Diacrineo. Really examine yourself. Then we would not be Cornell. And so the idea goes on, he says, but when we are judged, that is, 
we didn't examine ourselves and that other party is finding flaws and cracks and fault, he goes on, he says, we are chastened. The word for chasten in this, in this passage is the word of a parent disciplining a child. Uh, the beginning of the word I give you. Pideon is child. And so that very first part is taking child correction, which clearly brings this to believers. That if believers do not examine themselves, they will be examined by God when they participate in this service. And when they're examined and God finds something not right that's not been fessed up, he's going to parent discipline us. He's going to correct us. In fact, he goes on and he says, okay, uh, this doesn't mean I'm going to take away your salvation. We know that. We know you can't lose your salvation so that we should not be condemned with the world. And he calls him my brethren. But it can include physical discipline. In this text, if you look at verse 30, the physical discipline is some are weak, sickly, many sleep. Many have died. God is serious about this. God is really watching this morning. You and me, are we going to approach this in a worthy or unworthy fashion? With seriousness? Exalting him? Examining ourselves? Or in a flippancy that says, I don't care. I don't care. God, you know, God, will, God will have to put up with whatever I'm giving him. Listen, my friend. Some of you don't even put up with what you see in this symbolism. Some of you have boycotted the NFL. Because you think that that disrespect, that's it, I'm done with it. What is God supposed to do when you boycott, when you disrespect his son? What's he supposed to say? Oh, it's okay. Because you are somebody special? No. Whosoever, whosoever does this unworthily, he says, you better examine yourself. And you better look closely. And you better make sure that things are right. Do any of you ever see these things? They're called communion tokens. You familiar with them? Okay. Communion tokens were given out 17, 1800s, pretty commonly in the British Isles and then initially in the first generation of American churches. Not, uh, but this was done in Protestant churches. And uh, what they would do is they would give a communion token. And uh, typically, though, many of those churches would celebrate communion once a year. And they would do the love feast. They would do the foot washing and they'd do communion. And you, if we were to do it, you would all be invited, but you couldn't come unless you had a communion token. And the communion token would say the name of our church. It would give the year, because this is a one-year thing. You can't repeat by having a token from the previous year. And it might even have a number. The number could include the chair you're sitting on, so that you, when you come for the feast, you're all spread out all over. And so you'd get a communion token. The way that you get a communion token is you would have to meet with the leadership of the church. And the leadership of the church was going to help you out to examine yourself. And they would ask you a series of questions. And these questions were to see if you are in a right frame of mind and right spirit to take communion. And so some of those questions come down to us through history. We read about some of the very questions they would ask these church members uh, as far as whether or not you got a token and participate in communion. And so here, let me read some of the questions you might be asked if somebody were to do that today. Have you grown this year in your Bible knowledge and understanding? Can you recite the basic elements of the gospel? If so, recite it. Have you read the Bible this past year, this month, this week? 
If so, how much Bible reading do you do daily? Do you have a personal Bible that you use for reading and studying? That would be pretty big back in those days. What church ministry or ministries did you physically participate in this past year? What verses of Scripture have you memorized this past year? Say them. How often and how long do you pray? Is there someone who asked you if you'd prayed for them during this past year? Did you? Have you read any other Christian books to help you grow in your understanding of doctrine or the Bible? Are you harboring any ill will towards others? Did you this past year? If so, did you make things right with them? Did you lead anyone to the Lord or attempt to share the gospel with somebody this past year? Who? Are you in right relationship with your family members right now? Parents, spouse, siblings? Are you harboring some secret sin that you should repent of? We know that that's, that's a flawed system. Because... Okay. Can, can you lie about these things in your answers? Right? We could lie about it. But we also know it's flawed because the passage didn't say examine one another. What did the passage say? Examine yourselves. Okay. I understand that. I understand that, that, that that's a suspect way of doing it. But let's just pretend it's real. Let's just pretend you were asked some of those questions. And you were honest about it. Would you be given a communion token? What if God asked you those questions today? Would he give you a communion token? It's so easy to come to communion and just overlook what we've done or not done. It is so easy for us to just become mechanical and mundane and say, cool, we're doing communion the first, you know, the first full week here of the New Year second. I'm glad we're doing it without examining ourselves. And you and I need to examine and say, okay, okay, what, what does he tell me? How am I supposed to be doing this? Every one of us is supposed to be doing it. The exam is for every believer. The examination is you examining yourself, not you examining others in this room. They shouldn't take communion. Look at what they do. Look at the car they drive. They're even here without a tie. God bless you. Okay? They're, should be done before we participate in communion. Okay? And it's supposed to be thorough and honest. Now, this is me. This isn't you. This is me. At this moment, I feel completely unworthy to take communion. Those questions I find extremely challenging and say, whew, do I have a long way to go? This is me. None of you probably think that. But this is me. Can I still participate in communion? Or should I, should I do this? If I find myself wanting before the Lord, should I just say, that's it, I'm done. I'll never take communion again. Ah, he invites them. He says, guys, come on. Take communion. What should I do to make sure things are right with the Lord? What should I do? Well, you and I have this benefit right now. We can do it. 
We can do what 1 John invites us to do. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to do what? Cleanse us. And start fresh. With fresh commitment, fresh desires, fresh determination of exalting Christ and keeping things at a short account with him. That's the beauty of this. Jesus Christ saves Jesus Christ forgives even the saved person over and over again when they tr truly repent. We have a wonderful Savior. He deserves our exaltation. That's why when we come to communion at this moment, what we want to be doing is we want to be exalting Him. We want to make sure we're right. And when we get to that point where we're going to celebrate communion one with another, if you are born again, you know Christ. You're a believer. I'm going to invite you to participate with us as long as you're right with God to the best of your abilities or you're fessed up and you're right with others and take care of those things.